This program is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good morning and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I, on behalf of uh, Greg and Maria Jobin Leeds and the Partnership for Democracy and Education, we'd like to um, thank our co-sponsors um, today. Um, that is uh, the Commonwealth Seminar, Emerge Massachusetts, Mass Vote, and OISTE, and, um, and our host, especially our host, Suffolk University, um, who is um, uh, represented today um, mostly by Professor uh, Terry Fair, who some of you know has um, recently um, um, been recognized as one of the, uh, the uh, best uh, professors here at Suffolk. So, um, uh, Terry Fair. First, let me welcome you on behalf of my institution, Suffolk University, uh, which is co-sponsoring this event with so many wonderful and community-minded organizations. On behalf of the university president, David Sargent, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Dr. Kenneth Greenberg, and the chair of the Department of Government, Dr. John Berg, I extend a warm welcome. Suffolk University has a long history of preparing students to be agents of change, not only in the corporate sector, but also in government, nonprofits, and within the community. Our support for this panel underscores our continued commitment to diversity, leadership, and education. So now, the purpose of this event uh, is to get a better understanding of this historic period in America, uh, to assess our new president and his administration in the first 100 days, and to develop a strategic and long-term perspective on the opportunities for change and our role in leading and building a political movement to drive that change. The Honorable and Distinguished Congresswoman Barbara Lee will be speaking with policy experts Paige Gardner of Women's Voices, Women's Vote, and Bob Brassage of Campaign for America's Future. Each panelist will talk for 20 minutes, and each will, give their discussion, uh, will begin their discussion with providing us with an understanding of their working definition of progressive, a central concept to our discussion today. So I would like to introduce a woman who needs no introduction the Honorable Congresswoman Barbara Lee. <laughs> Congresswoman Barbara Lee was first elected to represent California's 9th Congressional District in 1998 in a special election to fill the seat of retiring Congressman Ron Dellums. A member of the powerful House Appropriations Committee, Congresswoman Lee serves on the Labor, Health, and Human Services, Education, the State and Foreign Operations, and the Financial Services Subcommittees. Additionally, she serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee on the, uh, on the subcommittees uh, on Western Hemisphere and African and Global Health. Congresswoman Lee was sworn in as the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus on January 6, 2009. This is a monumental accomplishment. Uh, the 42-member CBC is one of the longest standing caucuses in Congress and is often referred to as the conscience of Congress for the willingness to tackle the most serious social and economic issues facing minorities in the United States. Congresswoman Lee's accomplishments include promoting effective bipartisan leadership, uh, bipartisan legislation to stop the spread of HIV AIDS and bring treatment to the infected who have earned, uh, and this has earned her international recognition as a leader in the fight, in the fight against global AIDS HIV. She has often and co-authored every major piece of legislation dealing with global AIDS since she was elected to Congress. Additionally, Congresswoman Lee's will willingness to stand on principle 
earned her international acclaim when she was the only member of Congress to vote against giving President Bush a blank check to wage war against this, um, after the September 11th attacks. In addition to being one of Congress's most vocal opponents to the war in Iraq, Congresswoman Lee has been a leader in promoting policies that foster international peace, security, and human rights. She sponsored legislation disavowing the doctrine of preemptive war and has been a leader in the bipartisan effort in Congress to end the ongoing genocide in Darfur, Sudan, including through passage of legislation she authorized um, to allow disinvestment from companies doing business in Sudan. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, she wrote the poverty section of the Congressional Black Caucus's Gulf Coast Reconstruction Legislation um, and introduced a package of bills designed to make poverty eradication a priority for Congress. My last important note, Congresswoman Lee has written a memoir, and I encourage you to get it. It was published uh, in, the past, in this past October, and it's entitled Renegade for Peace and Justice. It is a fascinating book. It provides insight on her life and insight into her motivation, uh, the motivation behind her political activism. So without further ado, I introduce uh, Congresswoman Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Terry, first of all, for that very warm introduction, but also for your leadership and to, um, to Suffolk University um, for uh, having you here as a, and a professor of government uh, and just getting to know Terry and knowing of her, her work and, and her life. I tell you, I've only taken one government, in, uh, one government course, but had uh, <laughs> you been my professor, I would have probably taken more. <laughs> So thank you so much. Let me uh, also take a moment to thank um, the Jobin Leads, the Partnership um, for Democracy and Education, to Jeffrey Thomas, to uh, Michael Fogelberg, and to all of those uh, affiliated with really the democratization process that's, that's so alive and well here in Boston and in Massachusetts. And thank you for your partnerships with so many different institutions to really uh, make de democracy live and to make it a model, to make Boston and Massachusetts a model of what we, we can do at the grassroots level in building uh, coalitions of conscience, because that's what this is really about. Uh, to move forward to change the direction of our communities, our city, our state, our country, and the world. So thank you all for that. Let me um, congratulate my fellow panelists uh, for your leadership and for uh, everything that you do each and every day to make um, this a, a better world with, with your life and your work. Also, uh, let me just uh, take a moment to say to all of you, whether you're students here at Suffolk or not, how much I appreciate your being here on a, on a beautiful Saturday morning to um, participate in this very, very important discussion. And as I um, reviewed the issues we wanted to talk about today, it really forced, I'm sure, all of the panelists and myself to, to really think about um, not only this first 100 years in um, first 100 days, but, but also the, the notion of, of progressivism and what, a progressive, what progressive really means. And it was very interesting because I started doing some research to just see if there was a real um, definition and a distinction that would describe a liberal or one who subscribes to, to liberal politics versus um, progressive politics. 
And I really couldn't find anything, so I, I have to figure out my own definition <laughs> and, and what it means. But first, let me uh, just say that um, I, I really believe when I think of, uh, of a progressive or a progressive movement, that does mean moving forward. Uh, there's a saying that there are those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who stand around wondering what just happened. So I'm sure all of you uh, are progressives. Uh, you want to take action and make things happen. Also, to be a progressive, you must have an agenda. In other words, um, you can't just talk about being a progressive and wanting to make this a better world and to make democracy alive and well. But we have to have a plan on how to uh, address a variety of issues and to be able to uh, measure those accomplishments. And also, uh, for me, and I haven't seen any of this actually defined as a progressive, but I, I believe that a progressive is, is an individual or a progressive movement is a movement that has to address and does address the systemic causes of many of the issues that we're faced with the debt today. Uh, oftentimes, I see liberalism as tinkering around the edges and reformist and wanting to uh, kind of make bad things a little bit better. Uh, now, I know there are those who may disagree with me, but because there's really no formal, as I could find, definitions, you know, I created my own as, as I see it. And so I consider uh, myself, and all of my life I have been a progressive because I believe that Many of the issues around education, around the economy, around our foreign policy, uh, around the environment, you can't just tinker around the edges. You can't just kind of reform these policies, but you have to get in there and, and, and really tear down what's wrong. You, you can't pretend that it's right, that the underlying uh, systemic um, issues and foundations of some of what we're dealing with, it's okay to build upon that because it's not. You have to really change the system in order to, to really move forward. So let me just uh, talk first briefly about the, the uh, progressive congressional agenda. I served, I'm still a member of the Progressive Caucus and will be, we're the largest caucus in Congress, 77, 78 members. And I served as co-chair of the Progressive Caucus for four years with a great woman who still continues to serve as co-chair with a new co-chair, Congresswoman Rove Grijalva. This is Congresswoman Lynn Woolsey out of Northern California. We developed several years ago uh, with Bob Borsage and with others uh, with, our, with the progressive movement, we uh, developed a progressive promise, which is an agenda. And really, basically, it's a fairness agenda. Uh, it's rooted in our core principles uh, and embodies our national priorities that are consistent with the values, needs, hopes of all people, not just the powerful and the privileged, not just the corporate interests, not, well, not the corporate interests, but the people's interests. And this progressive promise, you know, is about economic security. It's about reshaping our foreign policy that reduces the reliance on militarism, but more on uh, smart security, global peace and security. It's an agenda that addresses civil rights, equal rights for all, including um, uh, gay and lesbian rights. It's, it's an agenda that uh, we think is a very progressive agenda, and uh, it's on our website, and uh, it's an agenda I hope that you will have a chance to look at. And when you look at the Congressional Progressive Promise, 
and then look at the Congressional Black Caucus's agenda, uh, they're very similar. And uh, probably about uh, a fourth to a half of the members of the Progressive Caucus are also members of the Congressional Black Caucus, which now I chair for the next two years. And when I look at both agendas, and the Congressional Black Caucus agenda includes fighting for economic justice and security, both U.S. and global economies, protecting and preserving civil rights and civil liberties, promoting global peace and security, environmental protection and energy independence. And when you look at the legislation that revolves around these, these core uh, themes or policies, very similar to the Progressive Caucus. Uh, there are 42 members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and so when you look at the overlap of the Black Caucus's agenda and the Progressive Caucus's agenda, and then when you look at the Hispanic Caucus and the Asian Pacific American Caucus, you have a very powerful force in Congress with a progressive agenda. And what is important, I think, for us is that this uh, movement for democracy in our country be built in a way that we can move this progressive agenda forward because we have over 100 votes for most of our progressive policies. But we don't have enough votes yet, which takes us to 218, to really pass a, a significant, bold progressive agenda because the progressive movement uh, hasn't been as political as, as it should be. The progressive movement has to begin to be hardball players in the political arena. And have, you know, I, I think it's important for the progressive movement to hold their members of Congress accountable to the progressive agenda. I mean, that's what I think we have to see as, as our mission from here forward as academics, as community groups, as civic organizations, as individuals who are working with organizations. We have to organize politically to weigh in with your elected officials to make sure that they embrace some of these core values, which really, when, when I tell Congresswoman Woolsey and Grijalva, when we talk, we say, you know, really, the, the, uh, the progressive promise and the Congressional Black Caucus's agenda, it's an agenda that every American should be proud of and every American should embrace, whether they're progressive or not, because it speaks to the core values of, of our country. Secondly, um, as I reflect on the first 100 days of the Obama administration, and of course I don't believe that any presidency can be judged in just 100 days, but I can say that President Obama is off to a good start, uh, especially as it relates to the progressive agenda. And there are those who don't want to highlight that for obvious reasons, but when I look at what he has done and when I compare it to the Congressional Black Caucus's agenda or the progressive promise, uh, it's a progressive agenda. He's the president of the United States and naturally has to unify the country around a core democratic agenda. But when you look at the fact that um, he says torture really uh, has to stop, I believe, I know you believe torture is un-American, you know? Uh, that should be an American value. Uh, it's certainly a progressive value. Uh, he's said he's going to close Guantanamo. That's been certainly at the list of the Progressive Caucus's agenda. When you look at him signing the Lilly Ledbetter Act, I mean, equal pay for women, I mean, come on, that's a progressive value. But it's also an American value. The president signed that first bill he signed into law. When you look at what he has done with regard to uh, children's health, we tried to pass this bill, the CHIP program, two or three times 
President Bush vetoed it two or three times. President Obama in the first few weeks signed the Children's Health Bill into law. When you look at the fact that uh, he's had to make bold and difficult choices uh, to get the country back rolling uh, in terms of get, digging us out of this mess that the previous administration created, uh, he stepped out there with the economic recovery package. Progressive Caucus wanted a trillion dollars, and we still think we need a trillion dollars. President Obama worked very hard, tried to bring Republican uh, support, but couldn't get it. So we came up with a little less than $800 billion, but it's a good first start. It's going to create 3.6 million jobs. But I'm going to tell you, in how we put that package together and what the president signed into law speaks volumes to, I think, a progressive agenda. When you look at uh, how we structured, and I have to say that the Congressional Black Caucus and the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus was instrumental in this, we want jobs created in communities that need the jobs the most. We want them created in communities of color, which historically has, has you know, been, the, been discriminated against. The funding hasn't been distributed equitably and fairly, and so communities of color have lost out in terms of federal uh, job creation efforts. And so we decided we wanted some of the funding uh, designated to priority communities that uh, deserve some of these monies, and we did. We found ways to do that based on census tract data. We found ways to target the resources to create jobs for formerly incarcerated individuals. Uh, of course, they haven't recently been laid off, but why should they be left out now that they've completed parole, they're back into society? Why should they be left out of the economic recovery package? They need a job, especially in this economic downturn. So we figured out ways to do that. When you look at the neighborhoods that have been hit hardest by foreclosures, I mean, I know in my district there are blocks and blocks and blocks of, na of, of houses that are totally uh, abandoned now, creating public health problems, creating blight. And what does that have to do with economic recovery? Well, it has a heck of a lot to do with it because we can create jobs, good-paying jobs, by hiring people with minimal skills to come in and to rehab these houses and create livable communities so people can move back in their homes, so new people can come in and rent these homes or purchase these homes. And we had to fight to get, uh, we started with $2 billion in that, uh, $4 billion, but I think we came up with uh, $2 billion ultimately for the neighborhood stabilization funding. That was a progressive uh, initiative. Uh, it never would have happened had it not been for the Black Caucus and the Progressive Caucus. When you look at um, workforce investment for adult training, we talked uh, a little bit about the fact that uh, there are many people in disadvantaged communities and marginalized communities and communities of color that uh, don't have the skills for a lot of reasons for the new jobs that are going to exist, for instance, in the green training industry. So what did we do? Again, I think this was very progressive. Now, I think if you looked, again, thinking about the difference between liberal and progressive, from my vantage point, a liberal would have said, well, we're going to put money into the, we're going to create jobs, of course, in infrastructure, in uh, green jobs, in all of the industries of the future. Well, that's fine. A progressive said, yeah, but what about all these people who aren't going to qualify for those jobs because they don't have the skills? You know, they haven't had the education. The educational system's failed huge numbers of people in this country. So as progressives, you know what we did? 
We insisted on workforce training money in the economic recovery package. So we put $4 billion in there and the president supported it. So we pushed the envelope. We went past creating the jobs to creating the, the skills training and workforce training and, and education that's required for these jobs. So that was a uh, progressive position that we took and we fought for and we had the votes for. Also, we could have just allowed the um, economic recovery funding go to big business or to existing institutions that, uh, you know, would create the jobs, fine. But what would happen to uh, small businesses, to minority-owned businesses, to women-owned businesses? Again, um, you know, a liberal point of view would be, well, look, we're going to create the jobs through existing entities. We need these jobs to go out, the creation of them to go out quickly. Yes, we do. We need the infrastructure piece to go out quickly. Yes, we do. But as progressives and as uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Hispanic Caucus and Asian Pacific American Caucus, we said, okay, fine. But what about minority-owned businesses? What about small businesses? What about women-owned businesses? You know what's going to happen to them. They're going to be shut out. They'll never be able to participate if we don't have requirements in this bill to include these businesses, which create many, many jobs. So what did we do? We wrote in language to make sure that there was a bonding program in, in this for 15 to 20 million, which bonding is a big problem, and, and some other efforts to, for compliance with federal laws to make sure that economic recovery package included minority women-owned small business in its efforts. We put in a $35 million uh, microloan piece for SBA so that people who have lost their jobs recently, who want to start businesses, you know, there's some very creative ideas in many of our communities that should blossom now if we could help people establish small businesses. And so, again, a liberal perspective may not have realized that, oh, God, we have people who, who can run businesses if they're only given an, uh, the foundation to do that. And so as progressives and as members of, of our tri-caucus and the black caucus, we insisted that we have a microloan program uh, in this uh, economic recovery piece. I could go on and on about that, but I just wanted to kind of clarify and, and show you how as we work on these initiatives, that uh, we make sure that not only a liberal perspective is there, but that a progressive perspective is included to push the envelope. Because our president, during his first 100 days, he, he supported each and every one of these efforts, plus many more, that we put in this economic recovery package. And it wasn't a president who was kicking and screaming. This was a president who said yes. You know, we have to figure out ways to provide a summer job program for our young people. That was a very progressive position to take uh, in an economic recovery package. And so we put in millions of dollars for a summer tra job training program, and we targeted it. We came up with new language, disconnected youth. We couldn't <laughs> So you'll see that. Now, if you're a disconnected youth, young person, or if you're disconnected, uh, and we couldn't put in formerly incarcerated individuals, but if you've been disconnected from the workforce, you know, the progressive position and the Black Caucus's position was, hey, this money has to be prioritized and, and resources have, have to be put in here for uh, disconnected individuals who would never be connected to the resources that are going to be created, that are out there now to create these jobs. Finally, let me just say, in, in the... Um, First 100 days, reversing family planning, 
You know, the president ended the global gag rule, which we've been working on for eight years trying to end, so now we can use federal dollars for family planning abroad. That was a big piece for women's rights and for health care for women. Uh, he reversed the stem cell funding ban. Uh, he did that with the stroke of a pen. Uh, he required the EPA now to reexamine all the decisions um, denying California's request for a state waiver under the Clean um, Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from motor vehicles. Uh, he has done an amazing job with just with the stroke of a pen to try to begin to clean up some of the mess of the last eight years. And having said that, uh, let me just say, I think the, as a progressive, I'd grade him an A. I'd give him an A plus for the first 100 years. <laughs> and thank you again for giving me the chance to be here. <laughs> thank you. Our next panelist is Paige Gardner. She's the founder of Women's Voices, Women Votes, and its sister organization, the Women's Voices, Women's Vote Action Fund. After the 2000 election, Gardner wanted to improve her understanding of how to identify and mobilize non-voters. So she examined exit polling and census data and found that there was a stunning difference between the voter particip participation rates of married and unmarried women. Most civic participation efforts addressed women voters as a group. But this was the first effort to focus on the nation's largest and fastest growing but underrepresented demographic group, unmarried women. In 2003, Gardner, along with Chris Dresner, founded Women's Voices, Women's Vote, with the goal of increasing unmarried women's participation in the political process. More than five years later, and three election cycles later, Women's Voices and Women's Vote has helped unmarried women to bring their share of total voters closer to their presence in the population. With Gardner's leadership, Women's Voices and Women's Vote have, has achieved these results through an ever-expanding array of rigorously tested and proven programs. Women's Voices and Women's Vote is a pioneer in the area of metrics voter re uh, registration, voter turnout, and advocacy. This organization and Paige Gardner is a leader in developing new ways to enfranchise and empower historically disadvantaged groups that now comprise the American electorate, unmarried women, African Americans, Hispanics, and young people. So I ask Paige, before you begin, please define for us your working definition of progressive. And I present to you all, Paige Gardner. <laughs> it's hard to say women's voices, women's vote that fast so many times, I'm impressed. <laughs> Um, thank you very much. Well, let me start by thanking you and thanking the uh, Jobin Leeds Partnership for Democracy for inviting me to this wonderful and happy day. It's really exciting to be among a group of people who are finally talking about the strength and the power of progressivism and progress. Um, we, I also want to take a special moment to uh, note Bob Borsage, who's uh, been one of my good friends and mentors for many years, and so I'm happy to share the uh, panel with him as well. Um, we're here today really to offer a definition of uh, progressivism and then a progressive assessment of the President Obama's first 100 days. But I believe, going to the definitional issue, that for all its faults, our nation's history has been defined by progress towards including more and more people, 
uh, equitably and fully in every arena of American life, our economy, our democracy, and on our entire society. So as you noted, Women's Voices, Women's Vote, the organization I founded with Chris Desser, is designed to encourage the nation's 51 million single, separated, widowed, and divorced women to register, to vote, and take part in the political process. That's progressive. Not only because these women have progressive views, but because including more and more people in the process, fully in the process, is what we think is inherently progressive. So, the first 100 days, it's been like no other. Uh, he, the President Obama, has, hasn't just hit the ground running. He's offered us a bold agenda, delivered on so many promises, and restored this country's hope for the future. His economic recovery program isn't only about rebuilding the nation's infrastructure. It's also about remaking America and ensuring that our country has a bright future now and for years to come and for our children and our children's children. He is rebuilding the social infrastructure, restoring our environment, investing in our children, making sure that workplaces do not discriminate, and finally doing something, truly doing something about health care. He is offering us an America built for the many and not just the few. Some can and do complain he is helping Wall Street too much. But we must remember he is also helping Main Street and he's helping those around the kitchen table. The first 100 days of the, we should, I want to also step back and say we should also remember the first 100 days of those in Congress who refused to reach out to help this president rebuild America. Those very same members who were so eager to help the last administration. They should be ashamed of themselves, and in a very non-partisan uh, way, we should get rid of them. <laughs> Many are also saying that President Obama is trying to do too much, too fast, too soon. We call that multitasking. So, this afternoon, I really want to talk about how America is changing and how it's becoming a much more progressive nation and how the electorate is changing and how the Obama administration's survival and success depends upon keeping faith with the forces and sources of this change. These are progressive sources and these are going to be the power of this country going into the future. The groups that are changing America demographically, unmarried women, African Americans, Hispanics, young people, and those of other races are changing America politically. These groups we are calling the rising American electorate. Last year, they participated more heavily than ever before. They supported Barack Obama overwhelmingly at a time when the rest of the electorate was willing to settle for John McCain, and this rising American electorate gave Barack Obama his margin of victory. I just want to put one thing on this, show you this first slide, so as we talk about this group of people, you understand how they help achieve what this organization is about. As the Obama administration passes its 100-day mark, uh, the continued success of the presidency depends upon the continued participation of the very segments of society that have traditionally been shut out of the political system, but for the first time 
in a long time. They made their voices heard loud and clear last year. So I want to look, take a moment to look at the numbers uh, behind the history at Women's Voices, Women's Vote. We are uh, proud of the fact that we do everything with numbers, and we usually, as Bob knows, uh, we do everything with PowerPoints. So <laughs> here we go. If you look at the rising American electorate, it includes 107 million people, 52% of all voting age America. America. At its core, as you see, are the 51 million unmarried women, many of whom are also in the other critical uh, constituencies of African Americans, Hispanics, young people, and those of other races. But why do we concentrate on unmarried women? Because marital status determines whether you vote and how you vote, and it binds much of these groups politically. Okay, where's my little, oh, okay. See, we have tried to make PowerPoints more interesting. So we've added little tricks to these things. Anyway, the word sort of rising um, and the new American majority sort of sums it up. If you look at the rising American electorate, there are 52% of the population now, and, and this is not double counting, and 47% of the electorate in 2008. So a majority of the population and yet still underrepresented in the electorate. See, oh, see these little tricks that we've learned how to do. And the word rising sums it all up. If you look at in its size, its voter registration, its voter participation, this America is growing rapidly. All four groups are bringing their share of their vo votes closer to their share in the population. And if you look at African Americans, it's now equal, which is incredibly important. And the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the crowd needs to catch up. If you look at who voted for Obama and, and how these groups supported um, his victory, unmarried women were the largest share of the total of the Obama vote. In fact, if you look at among all the people who voted, in terms of an increase in turnout, unmarried women accounted for the largest uh, and almost half of the increase of all the votes in 2008. And they're the big, if you see again, unmarried women are, represent the largest block of the rising American electorate. And if you look at the new voters, the unmarried women participated in higher rates um, as their share of all the rest of the uh, groups. For example, the first of young voters, 56% of all the new young voters uh, were unmarried women, despite being only 38% of all young people. This is the vote for President Obama, as you see uh, among this group. African Americans, unmarried women, Hispanic and youth, they supported the president. The other voters in this country did not, by almost a two to one margin. Now this is what we're talking about in terms of the differential in participation among married and unmarried people. If you see, there's an enormous marriage gap uh, in how people vote and that is very much different than the gender gap, which is more descriptive. You see how young pe married and unmarried uh, young people voted. You see the differential in the uh, margin and the numbers. You see this with African Americans. You see this with Hispanics as well. 
The key point, though, about this group of people is that they face real obstacles still to participating in this country's democracy. 37 million potential voters were not, did not vote because they were not registered. This is a tragedy in this country. 62% of all those who are unregistered in this country are part of the rising American electorate. And this is the scary part of the story. Um, if you look at their self-reported drop-off rates, in other words, those who voted in 2008 and plan not to vote in 2010, you'll see that the rising American electorate has a higher self-reported drop-off rate. And these are the Obama voters versus the other voters uh, in the country. If you remember, these were the people who voted for McCain. So this is, we took this survey right after uh, the election was over, I mean, right uh, as the election was uh, happening. So I want you to remember this slide and keep this, um, keep this in your head as we go forward. Now, these groups and the people in these groups are really on the front lines of the economic crisis in this country, and there is a marriage gap even among people who suffer uh, economically in terms of their hardship. The recent unemployment uh, disproportionately impacts um, un unmarried people in all the group. If you look at housing and um, the, the percentage of household income that people have to spend to stay in their homes, it's disproportionate by the rising American electorate and by marital status. Again, mortgage payments. So you have this group of people who are now the majority of the country. They're incredibly progressive. They're on the front lines of the economic crisis, and they don't plan to vote uh, as largest numbers in, as in 2010. So we wanted to say, okay, where are they now? This is, you know, if you look at this, where are they now? What do they think of the president's first 100 days? So, not surprising, uh, they give uh, President Obama enormous support, both in terms of his uh, job approval and the support for his policies. As you see, the all other voters, not so much. If you, you look at what these uh, people want the Congress to do, they want um, the Congress to support the President and to get this country back on track. If you look at the difference, 74% of the rising American electorate say, I want my representative in Congress to support Barack Obama's efforts to get the economy moving again. If you look at all other voters, 49%. If you look at the second statement, I want my government, and the negative statement is, I want my representative in Congress to vote against Barack Obama to reduce the size of government and cut taxes. They like his bold agenda. They like the fact that America is moving again. We're getting back on track. And they think this president offers them hope for the future. The other voters, not so much. If you look at his job approval and Obama and his uh, support for his policy, again, you see an enormous marriage gap uh, in the support. Now, this, remembering the old slide that I showed, after the first 100 days, we asked people again, what is your likelihood of voting in uh, 2010? 
and the rising American electorate, that number reduced from, you know, from planning to drop off. Remember, that was 40% originally. So keeping these people engaged, keeping them invested, keeping them activated, motivated in the process, getting them to register to vote, to advocate for progressive policies that they think move this country forward. This is key to our being able to realize a strong progressive movement for now, not only now, but in 2010 and 2012. So we've got to harness the energy of the progressive forces in this country to make sure that the President and the members of Congress have the support behind their back that they need to ensure the success of rebuilding this country. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much for letting me go through all these numbers. And thank you again for asking me here. Oh, I was instructed. There you go. So good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. So we have our third panelist, Bob Borisage. He's the president of the Institute for America's Future and the co-director of his sister's, sister organization, the Campaign for America's Future. The organizations were launched by 100 prominent Americans to challenge those, this, the rightward drift in U.S. policies and to develop the policies, message, and issue campaigns to help forge an enduring majority for progressive change in America. Mr. Borisaj writes widely on political, economic, and national security issues for a wide range of publications, including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. He's a con contributing editor at The Nation magazine and a regular contributor to the American Prospect magazine. He is a frequent commentator on television and radio, including Fox Morning News, Radio Nation, National Public Radio, C-SPAN, and Pacifica Radio. So please join me in welcoming uh, Bob Borisage. Okay. Well, let me thank uh, the Job and Lead Partnership also, and I'm told that uh, Michael Fogelberg did the hard work of putting this together, and so let me pay tribute to Michael for his good works. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Farr, thank you for that nice introduction. Uh, Barbara Lee is one of those leaders. You know, there's many progressives in the Congress, uh, 77 in the caucus. Um, and everyone often wonders, why is it not more powerful? And uh, a lot of progressives in the Congress are what I would call uh, dissenters. They, and these are honorable, wonderful people. They stand up and they uh, lay out uh, what they principally believe in, and they dissent from what's going on. But they're not interested in building uh, a coalition, a power, for uh, moving that position forward. They're interested in stating it and dissenting. Uh, Newt Gingrich on the right was an, an, a very extreme conservative, but he believed in building power. And so he took six or seven conservatives, started the Conservative Opportunity Society, challenged his own leadership, built a coalition, and eventually uh, took over the Congress uh, with disastrous effect. Um, He's not the model in terms of what he did, but he is the model in terms of someone with values and intent being interested in taking power and changing the course of the country. Barbara Lee is that special person in the Congress on our side of the session. <laughs> so 
So it's a, it's a great pleasure for me to have worked with her and to uh, follow her leadership on a whole range of things. Paige Gardner, who you've just heard, uh, did a very uh, special thing, which is she, uh, in a sense, saw what was in front of everyone's face that none of us could recognize, which was that there was this whole category of voters who, when they voted on married women, voted overwhelmingly for uh, the progressive side of the spectrum, but they very frequently didn't vote. And so she built Women's Voices, Women's Vote to actually go out and find out how to communicate with them, how to engage them, how to excite them, how to get them in the process. And damned if she hasn't succeeded, it's really quite an extraordinary accomplishment. Paige Gardner's <clears throat> Now, what's a progressive? Uh, let me give you my version of this, which is, uh, let's ground it in history. The first progressive movement started in the last Gilded Age. Uh, in reaction to the extremes of the turn of the 19th century when we had the satanic mills and labor without any rights. It used to be against the law to organize a labor union. Um, and uh, extreme poverty and extreme inequality. And the progressives grew up uh, and populists grew up to challenge that and to lay out an agenda. Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican progressive president, laid out an agenda that included environmental protection, fair labor standards, a 40-hour week, uh, the weekend for workers, uh, a minimum wage, etc. And it took his uncle, cousin, his cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, and a Great Depression to actually get that uh, agenda finally passed. But that was the core of the progressive uh, thrust, was to take on the question of how you build rules around an economy so that it works for working people, for everyone. Uh, after World War II, uh, we had an economy that was working pretty well for many people. And the liberals' movements, the civilizing movements that I grew up with uh, of our time, the civil rights movement and the women's movement, the environmental movement, uh, the gay rights movement, we, we were really engaged in uh, trying to get more people into that uh, growing and vibrant economy, trying to make sure there were seats at the table for everybody and that everyone had rights. Um, and we were pretty successful at that, frankly. But we assumed, at least when I was growing up, we assumed a growing economy. We assumed a prosperous America. And we were outraged that African Americans and minorities, that women that uh, weren't respected or that the environment was being ignored. And we built movements around that. The new progressives, in a sense, started uh, when we suddenly realized that uh, assumption of a prosperous America wasn't working, that we were headed back to Gilded Age inequality, that middle-income people were losing uh, ground, that poverty was increasing, that we had opened the doors of opportunity for African Americans, and then we took away the ladder that they might uh, climb up on, uh, and that it was time to go back to looking at working on the core economic agenda that the country had to face so that we could once again build an economy that worked for the, for the many and not just the few. That's my definition of a progressive. Now, let me tell you what I think, where I think we are, and I'll, uh, I'll try to do this with a couple stories to start with. They're probably stories you've heard. They're pretty famous. Um, it's 1933. Franklin Roosevelt's president. We're in the Great Depression. And Sidney Hillman, the great uh, uh, labor union leader, comes into his office. Hillman had played a significant role in helping to elect Roosevelt. And he comes in with other labor leaders. He says, Roosevelt, we need the right to organize. We need a higher minimum wage. And we need public workshops to put workers to work right away. 
And Roosevelt looks at them and he says, quote, I agree with you. I want to do it. Now go out and make me do it. Uh, it's a famous story. It's maybe apocryphal. Eleanor Roosevelt used to tell the same story about uh, A. Philip Randolph, saying that Randolph came in and, and said, to her, uh, said to Roosevelt, uh, you have the power to change civil rights in this country. And Roosevelt said the same thing to him. I agree with you. I want to do it. Now go out and make me do it. Uh, let's tell a story about Lyndon Johnson that Bill Moyers tells. It's a scene with Dr. Martin Luther King and Johnson before they broke over the war in Vietnam, early in the Johnson presidency, when civil rights was the crushing issue of the time. And King came to Johnson and said, we need this Voting Rights Act and we can't wait any longer. We waited too long. You can do this and I need your help. And Johnson, according to Moyers, turned to King and said, I want to do it, but I can't get it through the Senate. It's controlled by those barons. You have to go out and make me do it. And in that last meeting, King then left to a small unknown town named Selma in Alabama. Uh, and the rest was history as King, in a sense, made him do it. Why tell these stories? Because the 30s and the 60s, this era represents the greatest period, potential period for progressive reform since the 1960s and the 1930s. For the next few years, we will set the framework for our society and our economy, perhaps for our, sur our survival, that we will live with for decades. Now, this won't happen by magic. It's not preordained. It will be resisted by enormously powerful and entrenched interests. And while we have a wonderful and uh, extraordinary leader as president, he will need powerful, independent, progressive movements to go out and make him do what needs to be done. Now let me summarize why I think this is true and where we are. We're headed into a spasm of reform for one compelling reason. Uh, think of Bob Dylan's famous, wonderful song, It Ain't Easy Baby, Everything's Broken. The crisis forces change, and the scope of the crisis is just becoming clear. We have the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, everyone knows that. $13 trillion in wealth disappeared. Five million people have already lost their jobs. 25 million people in Latin America will be thrust into poverty, and it will get worse around the world. It is global. At the same time, we face the most catastrophic environmental challenge ever. Not the swine flu, but catastrophic climate change, which is already here. The ice caps are already melting. The sea is already rising. The droughts are already worsening. We are close, if not past, a tipping point, and we're talking about fundamental changes outside the range of human experience. So you can't talk about a recession, a recovery, you know, lower interest rates, spend a little money, kickstart the economy, put people back to work, our 401s will come back. Ain't going to happen. We have to have fundamental changes to restructure this economy going forward. And we shouldn't want to go back to that old economy. It's worth spending just a second on what the old economy was at its height in 2007 before the collapse. Worst inequality since the Gilded Age, financial wilding in which uh, finance captured 40% of the profits in the society, with the barons making multi, have, giving a, having a multi-million dollar personal incentive to gamble with other people's money, ruinous trade bill, deficits at two billion a day, uh, wiping out American industry as China and others lend us the money to buy the goods they make with the factories our companies took over there. A broken health care system, 
A broken education system, not simply doing the basics with college priced out of reach for more and more people. Yawning public investment deficits that you don't really hear about, but you feel from the levees in New Orleans, the bridge in Minneapolis, sewage uh, and water systems that are collapsing around us. Everything's broken. It ain't easy, baby. It's got to get changed. The second reason we're going to have change is we have a new leader who understands this, and we have a new Congress that is the most liberal Congress of our time and still not liberal enough. Uh, in a, in uh, the first 100 days, uh, President Obama has really done remarkably much more than I think most people expected. Uh, the recovery plan is the, made the largest contribution to poverty spending uh, since the Great Society. You're going to have work, poor working families are going to see two, three, four thousand dollars in money from the child tax credit, from an in, increase in the earned income tax credit, from uh, a range of other uh, food stamps, et cetera, et cetera, that have been expanded in the recovery plan. It's an extraordinary thing. It hasn't gotten much attention. It's a big deal. Uh, he doubled the education budget at the national level in the recovery plan. He tripled the energy budget, made significant investments in infrastructure. Then he brought in his first budget after that, again, with an emphasis on energy, new energy, on health care, fixing the health care system, and on education. And he took on every entrenched interest uh, just about in Washington, from agribusiness to the military-industrial complex to the bank, the student bank uh, lenders, et cetera. Uh, he's done a transformation of our foreign policy, at least by gesture. Uh, and uh, he's really created a sense of optimism and, uh, and pride in America. You know, we like the fact that we elected this man to be president. And we like the fact that he represents us in the world. It's a striking uh, and fundamental difference. Now... He's also done something very special which will define what we do over the next couple of years. That is, in the, in the key areas that we have to change to rebuild a different economy out of the ashes of the old, he has teed up what I would call signature battles. Let me, that sounds a little abstract. Let me explain what I mean. We used to do our social contract here through the corporations. So workers would work for a corporation for most of their life, and they could get health care, pensions, paid vacations, uh, and you would have a broad middle class built out of that. That contract has been shredded by the corporations now. And so we have to build a public social contract to replace it. Health care, pensions, guaranteed paid vacations. The signature fight on that, which will take place this year, is on the reform of the health care system and universal health care with a public plan as an option for Americans. We're going to have that fight this year. We have gilded age uh, inequality in this old system uh, where for the first time under Bush, we had increased profits and increased productivity and workers' wages went down. They didn't share in the productivity that gains that they helped produce. Uh, that means we need a very strong wage policy to strengthen the hand of workers, uh, raising the minimum wage, creating uh, 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 fair labor standards and, and enforcing them, and of course the signature battle on that that will take place over the next two years is on the Employee Free Choice Act and whether or not uh, we can get that past this Congress. Uh, we have to make investment in the next generation. You want to compete in a global economy on the high road as opposed to the low road, you better be the best educated country in the world. So we, we have an economic stake in that as well as a human stake in that. 
and we have a, an education system that is uh, really a disgrace in many ways. Uh, that means a large increase in investment to do universal pre-K, to do smaller classes in the early grades, to make sure teachers are rewarded and we get good teachers in the schools, to make college or advanced training affordable. One signature battle on that will take place in the next two weeks, which is whether we go to direct lending completely for student loans and take out the $90 billion in, in subsidies that go to private lenders uh, that can be used in the Obama plan to increase Pell Grants for poor students. But the big battle is going to take place next year and the year after when the recovery plan comes to an end, knock on wood, if the economy comes back. And we have to decide, we've doubled the education budget. Are we going to cut it in half? Are we going to not do, continue to do these basic investments? We've tripled the energy budget. We're going to cut it by two-thirds. The Obama plan, the long-term budget plan, uh, projects cutting that expenditure. And it will be cut unless we can sustain it and pay for it, which means progressive tax reform. Uh, We've had, we'll have skirmishes on tax reform. Uh, we just had one on the estate tax, which looks like we're going to win. We're going to have one on uh, what happens to the top end of the Bush tax cuts. But this is also something we're going to fight over the next two years. Um, so those are examples. What's interesting is how much of this Obama has put on the agenda and how much of this we will fight over the next two years. So what's happening in Washington and, around the, and should be happening around the country is that progressives are organizing significantly powerful efforts to support the passage in, and, the, and the president in these key signature battles. Uh, and it's not going to be easy. Uh, a lot of this attention is going to have to be focused on Democrats because there's a huge portion of Democrats uh, that don't get it and that are standing in the way and that have to be pressured to make this happen. And it's going to take a lot of citizen mobilization to help the president pass his agenda. But I suggest to you that's not enough. Uh, because while the president's teed up a lot, there's a lot that he hasn't teed up. Take, for example, the banking system. The president's banking plan is to subsidize the banks and to continue to subsidize them in the hope that eventually the economy will recover that garbage in their, their basements, the toxic assets will rise in value and they'll be able to, to stumble through to being, uh, uh, to recovering. That's a problem in two ways. One is it really gets in the way of a recovery. But the second way is even if it works, we end up with the banking system we had, which we can't afford. We have to restructure these banks and break them up. It's time to investigate the systematic fraud that went on. It's time to expose the banksters for what they were so that we can, in fact, restructure them. The president hasn't teed that up. That's going, to have, that's going to take a progressive movement, independent, willing to push, even in the face of the White House. Uh, arguably, there are other issues, like Afghanistan, as uh, Congresswoman Lee would no doubt say, where the same kinds of uh, organizing we have to think about. So let's go back to the stories of King and Roosevelt. The reason I think the stories are probably uh, true but misleading is that, in fact, no president wants an independent movement that is going to make trouble on their base, on his base. They want movements that will do what they want to do. The Obama people are spending a lot of energy and very creatively helping to organize progressives 
to support the Obama agenda. And they are very uninterested in an independent movement to push beyond that agenda. Uh, let's look at Roosevelt. The New Deal that we remember, Social Security, the Wagner Act, Fair Labor Standards that gave us the weekend, that didn't take place in the first 100 days. It took place when Roosevelt was running for re-election, and he was faced with a real challenge from his left. Huey Long, the Townsend Groups, Father Cogland, union organizing, independent, obstreperous, angry, upset, disgusted with the limits of the Roosevelt experiment. And Roosevelt headed into re-election to fend off that left, used the left to argue to the Congress, you better get this done or it's going to get worse and managed to get the New Deal that is the centerpiece of the reforms that became the centerpiece of the American social contract uh, through the Congress. But it took that independent movement to do it. The reality of Lyndon Johnson and Martin Luther King is that Johnson kept ordering Hubert Humphrey to tell that damn Martin Luther King to stop these demonstrations. He's, there, he's weakening my hand. He's embarrassing me. He's causing me trouble with the Senate. He's getting in the way. He's going to make it harder for me to deliver these Senate votes. He wants too much too soon. Uh, he's got to stop. And he was furious at King that he didn't stop. And because King was there, Johnson was able to get the Voting Rights Act through because of Selma, because of the, of the crisis that the independent movement uh, uh, forced and the, uh, then the swing in public opinion that took place. But it wasn't that Johnson wanted that to keep going. It's that King insisted that he would build it. So I suggest to you that a progressive movement now, as much as we uh, take enormous pride in President Obama and as much as we support him, and as much as we should pay tribute to the really extraordinary things he's done in only 100 days, we better start organizing independently uh, an obstreperous, demanding movement to, for real change in the society. So what we've had now has been, um, we've, we've had definitions, various definitions of progressive and what it means in a working way. We've identified progressive agendas that are uh, functioning within the Congressional Black Caucus, that are, but that are also helping to shape the president's agenda. As well, we've also assessed what's been done, who's being affected, particularly this new American electorate, as well as establishing pathways which are providing us with options or imperatives uh, for the future in terms of what must be done or what can we do. And so looking at this, what we're going to do is open the floor up for question and answer um, so that you can uh, engage our panelists in terms of how can you begin to manifest this progressive agenda in your activism, uh, in your community, or in your community uh, organizations, uh, and in your everyday. So we'll have some roaming microphones um, that will be passed around. Uh, so please raise your hand if you'd like to, um, to receive a mic. Uh, and at this time, we'd also like to pass around clipboards um, so that you can sign up, um, provide your email address, so you can get more information about the organizations that are represented here on the panel, but also they help to co-sponsor this event. So our first question. OK. All right. Sure. I certainly would like to thank the panelists for your valiant effort in terms of defining progressive and progressive progressivism. Uh, it seems like after Jimmy Carter and the subsequent uh, 
Republican revolution led by Newt Gingrich. It seems like the word liberal itself became uh, almost like a four-letter word. And, and the joke around is that, that liberals uh, rebranded themselves as, as progressives as opposed to calling themselves liberals. Uh, that's just a comment. But my question is, with respect to progressivism, it, it seems that, um, or, or my question is rather, do you feel that, that the movement itself has limited its base and its power by limiting itself to what it seems like almost only the liberal side. I think Bob, Bob, uh, uh, Bob touched upon that a little bit with respect to Teddy Roosevelt himself as a Republican who was truly um, progressive, you can say, for his time. And also with what Hillary Clinton talked about, uh, white working, uh, 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 the white working class and good people, whether they're in Appalachia, um, whether they're here in, in, in South Boston and in, in, in here in Massachusetts, it seems like the progressive movement has failed to really include some of those people who I think would certainly benefit from, from the movement itself. Could you please address that? Well, thank you very much for that question. I think the progressive movement um, is still evolving. I, I don't think it's failed. Uh, and I think, yes, when you look at, and I mentioned the progressive promise earlier, when you look at that agenda, that's an agenda that uh, every American uh, should and I think would embrace. And so I think we have to continue to work with broadening the base in addition to broadening the base with communities of color. And so you have uh, the poor, you have the world poor, you know, who, uh, are desperate in this economic crisis to um, put their lives back together, but their lives have been uh, not as, I mean, they've been neglected for many, many years. And so the rural poor should be included as a focus of, I think, the progressive agenda because part of the progressive agenda is to uh, cut poverty in half in, in 10 years. And so what we're doing as members of Congress is we formed an out-of-poverty caucus to include uh, rural members so that we can bring the rural and urban agenda on poverty together, which of course naturally would expand our base. And so yes, I think I don't think we failed. I think what we're doing is, is evolving and building this, this base to be uh, more inclusive and to be broader based and to really be more powerful. Uh, let me respond to your thing about uh, liberalism getting unpopular, which is uh, uh, was well, certainly true, uh, and you can see it in polling data, uh, for example, is still true to this day. I, I remember there, uh, Bernie Sanders, the head of the uh, progressive, the one who, person who's founded the Progressive Caucus, when he first came to Congress, uh, Bernie uh, once was, uh, I, I saw him at a fundraiser, and he said, you know, my opponent, um, he said, it's an interesting phrase. You know, I run in Vermont as a democratic socialist. Uh, and I'm proud, independent in the Congress, and I'm proud to be a democratic socialist. But my, apart, my opponent's spending millions of dollars on ads saying that I'm too liberal uh, for uh, Vermont, accusing me of being a liberal, uh, because that's the greater insult. Um, so, yeah, I think they did a good job of branding liberalism as unpopular. Um, the... Uh, uh, on the uh, question of, uh, you know, the reach of progressivism, uh, with Republicans, it's surprising to me that we haven't seen a greater uh, expression of sort of uh, common sense Republican uh, uh, 
the kind of revival of the Republican progressive tradition. Christy Whitman had an op-ed in the Times the other day saying it's still my party, but uh, they've pretty much read themselves, been read out of that party by what, uh, what a, a Republican party that's gotten more and more regional, uh, more and more conservative, uh, more and more monochromatic, uh, you know, a whites-only party. Um, and so there isn't uh, that old tradition seems to have very uh, limited uh, or almost invisible effect on the party. Uh, the thing I worry about is uh, the, there is a populism that Republicans have, a fake populism Republicans have uh, uh, cultivated, and they're now doing that in relationship to the debate now. So they're against the bailout going to the banks. They're against the big spending deficits, and uh, they're you know, arguing that it's going to require taxes. Um, and they are pushing, putting themselves in a position that if the uh, economic, if we don't get out of this economic mess, and the mess is greater than anything we've dealt with since the Depression, that they'll be able to, to say, see, we told you so. They've spent trillions of dollars on these bankers that are their friends. They've wasted trillions of dollars on, on these, or billions of dollars on these uh, subsidy programs, and it hasn't worked. And you're going to have to pay the price. Uh, and so as the party of no, uh, they're going to cultivate and capture a populist anger, which I think is really dangerous. You saw the first inst uh, instances of this in sort of the Fox News fake Tea Party revolt. But that's going to continue. Uh, and there ought to be, in fact, a populist uh, uh, motion and anger and response on the progressive side of the spectrum. And I'm very worried that because we're so pleased with the president, and supportive of the president that we aren't going to capture it, that we're going to cede that ground to the right, and that'll be very dangerous. My feeling is that when liberalism went out of favor was because there was a sustained effort to try to uh, define it as, um, uh, you know, to try to create a chasm between the notion of liberalism and fundamental American values. And I think that... And I think what Bob is saying is somewhat uh, interesting and true that, you know, the, the sort of populism on the right, I mean, the progressives have to hold on to what this country and the people in this country think are fundamental American values and what's fair and what's equitable. And as we become a greater and greater movement, yes, I think it's important uh, to make sure that, you know, the Obama presidency succeeds, but I think it's very important that we control the definition of what progressivism is about and how, you know, fundamental American values are being realized by the policies that progressives uh, put forward. Good afternoon, and uh, thanks to the panel for your remarks. I'm Kelly Chun. I have a cause-related marketing business here in Boston. Uh, representatively, I look forward to reading your book, Renegade. Um, and I have uh, two questions. One you may have already addressed, because I'm sorry I was late. It has to do with the Black Caucus's role uh, with regard to a progressive agenda and, and where they stand um, with that. And then the other one, a more general question for the panel, a mortgage modification bill um, kind of died in, in Congress uh, this week and one of the uh, Congress members said that the bankers own the place. And I don't remember, I think it was Dahmer, um, I don't remember which, right. So I was wondering if you could comment on um, how that, that bill's demise and uh, what role the, the banking lobby played um, with regard to the bill. 
First, let me uh, say thank you for the question. And earlier, we did talk in, in my remarks a little bit about this. Uh, and I'll just uh, repeat a couple of the points. I, I previously co-chaired the Progressive Caucus with Congresswoman Lynn Woolsey. Now I chair the Congressional Black Caucus. And when you look at the uh, membership, first of all, of the Congressional Black Caucus, we have probably in CBC members, 42 members, Progressive Caucus, 77 members, I think about a third, maybe closer to a half of the members of the Black Caucus belong to the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That's the first thing. So I think, you know, many of the uh, individuals' uh, legislation overlap with the Progressive Caucus and CBC. Uh, secondly, when you look at the agenda of the Progressive Caucus, the Progressive Promise, and when you look at the agenda of the Congressional Black Caucus, which has been formulated by the input of our colleagues, they're not just mine or Raul or Lynn's agendas. I mean, we've had major sessions with, with Bob Borsage and others to develop a progressive agenda. We've had major sessions with uh, members of the civil rights community and CBC members to develop the, the Congressional Black Caucus agenda. And it's, they're very similar. Uh, and of course, in both caucuses, you may have some members who are more conservative or more progressive than others. But I think, and we had, it was very interesting, a, a retreat with the Congressional Black Caucus and um, George Lakoff, some of you may know, who helped us with our uh, framing and messaging, was amazed at how progressive the Congressional Black Caucus members are in terms of positions on issues, legislation, and uh, views of progressive politics and where we're moving uh, in terms of our overall agenda. So I think you'll see quite a bit of overlap there. On the mortgage bill, um, you know, we've got uh, record foreclosures. Uh, one, I think it's now one in six homes with a mortgage is underwater. That is, it's worth, worth less than its uh, mortgage. Um, and uh, foreclosures are continuing to rise. The bill was uh, really a common sense reform, you would think, which is if you're forced into bankruptcy, uh, that a judge would have the right to... Uh, rewrite the mortgage, to lower the principal in the mortgage for those who, uh, people who were victims of fraud or who were, uh, uh, you know, where there's abuse by uh, the lending agencies, et cetera, or where just equity would allow them to stay in the home. The bank gets more money back because they don't have to go to uh, an auction. The person doesn't lose their home. The property values around aren't destroyed by the foreclosure. Uh, and you have an individual determination by a bankruptcy judge about who's deserving and who's not deserving. It just seems like it's un, you can't imagine why anybody would argue against it. Uh, it takes care of the problem of, well, we can't let people who were speculating, the judge won't let the speculators get away with it, uh, and it does help the people who got, uh, who got tricked. Uh, it is totally opposed by the banking industry, uh, which argues uh, that it will raise the price of mortgages to everyone, uh, which is... Um, uh, and basically doesn't want anything that will step into the way of them controlling what happens to a, a mortgage. Uh, the financial industry is by far, by four or five times, the largest donors to Congress. Uh, they donate to both parties. Uh, they have, uh, I think, tripled the size of their lobbies in the last year as they get ready for the fight we're having. Uh, and they managed to, uh, every Republican voted against this. Uh, and I think it was uh, 12 Democrats went the wrong way. Um, 
And this is the kind of corporate conservative side of the Democratic Party uh, who uh, will be a problem on, a, on issue after issue after issue. Uh, it's why progressives are going to be mobilizing significantly in con Democratic states and in Democratic districts uh, to try to bring them along. Uh, but on anything like uh, these financial uh, areas, they are particularly uh, uh, reactionary. Uh, you know, just the little irony of this, second homes, vacation homes, bankruptcy judges can rewrite the mortgages. So if you're rich and you have a second home, you get in trouble, you know, you lose, you, you're betting on something, you lose, and you get in trouble, you have to go to bankruptcy court. They can rewrite the mortgage of the second home, but for people who were victimized by systematic fraud by Countrywide and these other brokers who systematically got people into mortgages that they knew they couldn't afford, um, when they go to bankruptcy, uh, at this point, the Congress is refusing to give the judge the same right they have for the second homes of the wealthy. It is really quite extraordinary. Uh, and uh, it, uh, what, it was Senator Durbin, the uh, Democratic whip of the Senate, uh, who said uh, he was just outraged. He says, the banks still own this place, and uh, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to come back and try this again, and uh, he really needs to be supported. Hello, my name is Caprice Taylor Mendes. I'm actually, I work for a nonprofit supporting Democratic women to run for office. So thank you for the panelists and representing a progressive agenda. And I actually want to ask a question more on personal experience. I'm, um, I was born outside of the US and here in the city of Boston, one out of four households has a foreign-born person. And so immigration affects many homes. And I actually got my US citizenship. My pathway was the amnesty bill in the 80s. And there are many children, now young adults, single women, immigrant, who don't have their citizenship and are not able to access higher education. And with the raids going on at a national level, millions of dollars wasted in criminalizing people who are just here to work hard. And while we're not addressing immigration, we're also allowing for an underclass, a slave wage class, that also undermines the middle class and being able to compete against one another. And so it's a human rights issue. Meanwhile, corporations can uh, go and find the cheapest labor without any immigration laws prohibiting them to moving their corporation, creating jobs for cheap labor. Meanwhile, people who are trying to enter the country just to make a decent living are being prohibited. So corporate rights above human rights again. So for progressive agenda, I would love to hear how each of you are relaying the importance of immigration and what you do. So for example, if Representative Barbara Lee could highlight a little bit about how um, the Progressive Caucus and the Black Caucus is addressing the immigration issue and around the rising voices um, of the electorate, how immigration is also incorporated in there. And for yourself, um, Mr. Borsage, thank you how your message is also integrating immigration reform. Thank you. Sure. 
On, with regard to uh, immigration reform, the Congressional Black Caucus um, has supported and will continue to support comprehensive immigration reform. All of the elements in that, pathway to citizenship, uh, family reunification, uh, trying to weed through this homeland, re, you know, um, redesigning really home, the Homeland Security Agency. All of the issues that the Hispanic Caucus, we've been working very closely with the uh, we, the Congressional Black Caucus has worked very closely with the Hispanic Caucus on. The Hispanic Caucus met with President Obama several weeks ago. One item on the agenda was comprehensive immigration reform. And we are pushing for a bill. It's very complicated because some don't want comprehensive immigration reform. But the Congressional Black Caucus, we have actually uh, under our uh, judicial uh, task force, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who's been a leader in immigration reform. And the Congressional Black Caucus has our statement of principles, which we can get to you, it may be on our website, but I can get to you later, that what, how we see uh, immigration reform is very consistent with what uh, we think the country needs, what the Hispanic and Asian Pacific American Caucus needs making sure that our communities aren't divided and conquered in this, because we want to create jobs for everyone, good paying jobs with dignity. Uh, the DREAM Act is an important bill I'm a co-sponsor of. We hope to get that bill uh, out. Uh, it's been hard, but uh, minimally, young people uh, deserve to go, you know, be able to get um, funding, scholarships, federal funds to go to college if they were born in this country. And so that's a very important bill uh, for members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Also, these ice raids are, are terrible. My city is Oakland, is a sanctuary city. And we've had some terrible raids uh, close to schools, uh, close to houses of worship, churches. And uh, I actually wrote into the appropriations bill last year um, language about using funding for ice raids, how it could not be used to do these raids. Um, and that. If, if they're going to do raids, first, I don't agree with them, but if, if that's the law, they're going to have to make sure that the community knows they can't be done around uh, schools and, and places of worship, and they really need to, to cease. And so we're working very closely to try to stop this at a national level. I know we've worked with uh, your great delegation here in Massachusetts on, on these ICE raids. Thank you. Clearly, this is a very important issue because of how this country is changing. Um, but I would just add uh, to what the congresswoman said, it's, and bring in Bob, bring in Bob's uh, earlier uh, comments, that we've got to make them do it. So the stronger we are as a progressive movement pushing this issue of one of equity, of one of rebuilding this country, of strengthening its economy, um, and, and making sure that the people who live here are represented and do have a voice, I think we need to go out and make them do it. Uh, we do an annual conference uh, uh, gathering of progressives, the largest annual gathering of progressives in the nation's capital. It used to be called Take Back America. Uh, we changed the name this year to Amer America's Future Now on the theory that we can forge America's future now in this new era. Uh, and this year's conference, which I invite you all to, it's June 1st through 3rd in Washington, um, will feature uh, the leaders of the progressive community, the movements, the capacities that are being built. It's built around five uh, forums of major issues that we think are the strategic issues that we are going to fight on over the next year. New energy, education, 
employee free choice, health care, and immigration. Uh, and immigration, the President has promised to put on the agenda this year. Uh, we are, in addition to honoring Barbara Lee at our dinner, we're honoring Deepak Bhargava, who's the head of the Center for Community Change, has played a lead role in the immigration debate. Uh, we think it's a kind of fundamental question for both our community internally and for the, way, the, the question you raised, which is you can't have 10 million illegal workers and sustain a middle-class, well-paid middle-class uh, society. They, they simply become a huge way for employers to undermine wages across the board. And so we think it's important that we reconstitute our community uh, and put everybody in the protections uh, they need to be able to rebuild a middle-class society. Let me just say one thing about it, which is that the, the most important answer to immigration, in my view, is the least popular in every poll. That is, the most important answer to immigration is development in Latin America, Mexico, and Central America. People don't come here because they want to. They come here because they need to, to be able to support their families. They leave their homes. They leave communities they've grown up in. They take unbelievable risks uh, because they're driven by, uh, by desperation. Uh, and yet when you poll Americans and say, let's invest in, let's spend money to develop uh, Latin America, Central America, Mexico to help answer the question of immigration, it is the least, by far, the least popular uh, answer. But we will constantly have an immigration question until we have a more just uh, global at least hemispheric order. This young lady and then this gentleman here. I wanted to follow up on uh, what Bob Borsage was saying with regard to progressive taxation and uh, address my question to both him and to uh, Representative Lee. I, I, I'm not at peace with describing President Obama's tax policies as progressive or progressive enough. And I say that when he says that he's going to keep the Bush tax cuts for 98% of Americans, there's not a whole lot left to make it more progressive with. And uh, my organization, United for a Fair Economy, has a project called Responsible Wealth. And to be a member of Responsible Wealth, you're in the top 5% of either income or wealth in the country. And the top 5% uh, family income is about $170,000. And President Obama is saying that he's not going to let the Bush tax cuts expire for people uh, families with $250,000. It might sound like quibbling, but to me, there's a lot of room at the top where he could be increasing taxes and he's choosing not to. Um, and I feel that the same strategy, uh, Mr. Borisaj, that you're recommending that we take on immigration and uh, on the banks, which I totally agree with you, needs to be taken. There needs to be a left flank on progressive taxation. And so where my question goes to Representative Lee is, is there any sense um, amongst progressives in Congress to create that uh, group, that movement for more progressive taxation 
uh, in Congress, and, and particularly on the estate tax, where uh, before Obama was running for president, he was saying it's the Paris Hilton tax. Now he's saying he's going to keep the estate tax at the 2009 Bush level. I'd say what seems you, seems yeah. very extreme. Your question, real quick. Yeah. Let me let me. Per, let me let me say I th I don't the movement has to be built uh, on the outside. We um, have formed uh, with Bob Borsage's help the Congressional Progressive Foundation, and this foundation um, is is going to help develop some of these movement based uh, efforts. Uh, we can't necessarily do that in the Congress, but we work with the movement on the outside to push this. But having said that. Let me say, I think we should sunset and end all of the Bush tax cuts. All of them. All of them. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, but we have to have that movement there to, to push it. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus budget uh, and the Progressive Caucus budget, which we presented uh, on the floor, uh, we called for a vote. We had some very progressive tax policies in both of those budgets that would both end these Bush tax cuts. But again, it's building that critical mass on the outside, and that's what we have to do uh, with you. Um, well, first, to be fair to the president, uh, I, I guess I, what I would describe is he's done a good job of picking the low-hanging fruit on progressive taxation. So he, this is a president who uh, ran as a candidate who said he would raise taxes on the top 1%. American candidates do not run and say they're going to raise taxes. So while it was a small group, it was amazing that he did it. Uh, second, on the estate tax, uh, he had a, uh, he's had a pitch battle on his hands not to make it lower, but to keep it from get, I mean, not to make it higher, but to keep it from getting lower uh, with Again, Republicans combining with the, a few conservative Democrats to try to force uh, reduction from the rates that it is now, and he's managed to win that, uh, but it was a purely defensive battle. He's also tried to get uh, to eliminate the hedge fund dodge that allows billionaire hedge fund operators to pay a lower tax rate than their secretaries. I don't know that I can't. I don't know where that is now. I don't know whether we passed it or yet or not. Um, so at least he's put out some progressive markers. Um, but, you know, the uh, taxes are, are the, uh, uh, you know, you don't, what is the, you don't sell the, the grease when you cook the steak, you sell, you sell the steak, or whatever that <laughs> metaphor is. I'm sure I blew that one. Uh, but uh, uh, first you ought to sell the steak. We ought to talk, we're going to have this argument in two years. Do we keep the education budget where it is uh, and go to universal pre-K uh, pre for everyone and make college affordable? Do we sustain a new energy investments that are creating uh, new industries and new jobs and, and dealing with the catastrophic climate change uh, and effects that we face and getting us off our addiction to oil? Are we going to make sustain the infrastructure investments we need to build a 21st century infrastructure? To do that, we're going to have to pay for them. And uh, in a time of gilded age inequality, uh, progressive tax reform makes all the sense in the world. And there are a lot of taxes that are very popular. Uh, you know, for a small transactions tax on uh, stock speculation, which the British have, uh, the Europeans have, uh, would raise $100 billion or so a year. Uh, no one would notice it except 
the hedge fund operators are the guys that are betting constantly. And we want to lower the amount of betting that goes on daily and speculation that goes on daily in the stock market. So there's a whole range of taxes that ought to get done. Uh, the group you're, you're a member of is doing really terrific work on that and uh, needs to be complemented. But I think uh, the way that we're going to have, hopefully have this argument is in defending the investments we need uh, and not allowing them to cut them back again, we're going to have to find ways to pay for them, and then we ought to have progressive taxation. All right. This gentleman here had his hand up for a moment, and then we'll go. Uh, okay, Hi, my name is Ahmad Rivera. I'm with the Initiative in Diversity and Civic Leadership. And my question is particularly about your thoughts on Obama's first 100 days. And what I thought was interesting is that race, as with Obama's first 100 days, was sorely not mentioned explicitly. And we are actually moving towards this assumption of racism, particularly structural racism, being not only a legacy, but moving past that. In some ways, past gender, past class, Obama is going to solve it and allow us to make bridges past troubled waters for such a long time. And just to name some things that I am seeing statistically that are kind of problematic, foreclosure crisis, which this the one element that was progressive Obama's plan did not pass uh, our Congress. Uh, the rest of it wasn't even necessarily addressing those who are already in foreclosures, which is leading to the greatest loss of wealth in modern history for people of color. We have stagnant wages that have been happening since 2001 for people of color, particularly women of color, and we haven't seen a progressive agenda around women, particularly women of color, who are the central to the economy or building economies for communities of color and marginalized communities, none of which has been on the agenda uh, for this Obama administration. And even to push, I'm even, uh, and while uh, uh, Representative Lee, there are some great some things, especially with the Neighborhood Stabilization Act, so I want to applaud the pushing of actually making that particularly progressive with looking at place as a way to engage marginalized communities. But that has been one of the few bills that have left the Congress that has even included specific language around historically marginalized populations, race, or gender. So I just want to know, are we in a post-racial society according to this particular panel, or are we looking to have a strong critique about where we're going to go as far as progressive movement is? Thank you. Well, I think that um, first President Obama's election uh, demonstrated that on issues of race, we've made a quantum leap. We're at a different place, and we can't forget, however, that racism is alive and well in America. That is uh, why um, I personally believe the decision not to participate in the Durban Conference on Racism and Racial Discrimination was not a correct decision. <laughs> and I said that uh, because race has to be a factor in everything that we do. Because if it's not, you're just sweeping and wiping the issue of race under the rug again. Structural racism, institutional racism also is alive and well, and we have to deal with that in our policies. And that's the role of the Congressional Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, and Asian Pacific American Caucus. We, can, we have to be the voices of conscience, and we have to keep race as a factor in everything that we do. And so you will see in our legislative agenda that this will be part of the debate. And we do not intend to allow uh, the election of the president to deter us on issues 
of historical discrimination and racism. And the president gets it. He's the president, and he supports our efforts. And uh, many have said that, well, he hasn't talked about race, and he hasn't talked about how he's going to address the African-American and Latino or Asian Pacific American communities. And the response from the White House was, look at what I'm doing. You know, you can look at the budget. You can look at how we're targeting the funding. You can look at X, Y, and Z. Whether you agree or disagree, I think the president, and we met, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus also met with the president. And, and I'm confident that he uh, understands and knows exactly what you just said and is supporting uh, efforts to address and deal with structural racism. I think you're going to need, though, and, and we have to recognize we're not in a post-racial era, and, and that would be foolhardy to, to believe that. But it's going to be important for all of you to make sure that the dialogue on race, and I think this is the perfect opportunity for communities to engage in uh, the dialogue that we have not wanted to engage in up until now, and that is have, a, have serious dialogues and community forums on uh, issues of race and racism. Uh, when you look at uh, the whole issue of disparity in sentencing as it relates to crack and powder cocaine, I mean, that's clearly an issue of structural racism, you know, when you look at those who are incarcerated under that policy. We met with Secretary, uh, the Attorney General Eric Holder. We, when we met with the President, we said, this has got to go. We have to repeal this. They agreed with us. But we have to build a political movement for some of these changes. And so I think that it's time for communities to get very serious about uh, talking about race and racism as we try to bring together a broader progressive coalition to really uh, turn the country around on all of these issues. One of the things that we have looked at, which we gave you a little preview of, is that it, if you look at the economic crisis or the housing crisis, the uh, issues of uh, the impact in terms of race and gender and marital status, the differences are stunning. One of the things that we are going to be doing is putting out a series of um, policy papers saying, you know, as you address the uh, problems in health care, as you address the problems in housing and, you know, the other key areas, if you don't also address the disparate uh, impact, you're not really solving the problem. You're just carrying the problem forward in a new way. So, um, no, we're not in a post-racial society. And understanding how as we move the country forward to narrow the disparities is the fundamental task, I think, that uh, this administration faces. I thought your comment was terrific, uh, and uh, the, the politics of it are very uh, difficult for the president. Uh, so uh, in an economic collapse like this one, uh, this is a time when the argument that says universal programs, uh, health care, you know, uh, minimum wage, put people to work, universal programs uh, are popular, are needed. Uh, are compelling, and they make him the leader of the nation, which, of course, uh, he is and, and must be. Um, and it then gets, it gets harder for him, I think, because he is an African-American, to make the argument that says the reality you pointed out, that universal programs have a disparate effect if we have entrenched and structural uh, racist differences in the, that are built into the society. Um, I think he did a good job, in fact, it, with the recovery plan, uh, in part because of the work that Barbara and others did, uh, of 
creating programs that tried to address that and of emphasizing pieces of the program, uh, like the, the, the remarkable investment in the poverty agenda that have a disproportionate effect that aid uh, minority communities, uh, poor minority communities, um, and women. But uh, I think the, the rhetorical or the public discussion of it is going to be a very difficult thing. He's going to be very loath to do that. Uh, and so it's going to have to take place, again, from the outside, uh, and the discussion has to be uh, driven that way. And the housing thing that you pointed to is exactly the place, it seems to me, where we're having that discussion without having it. So the, the right-wing description of the housing crisis is that the powerful poverty lobby under the Bush years uh, got uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to force banks to make loans to people those people who weren't deserving of those loans, and they brought us down. So the right wing dial, the right wing description of what happened is liberals in government, Barney Frank, Bill Clinton, uh, the, the Nancy Pelosi Congress, driven by black people, the poverty lobby, uh, forced the banks to make loans to people who didn't deserve them, and they destroyed the banking system. And now we're all paying the price. And and you. Black people are to blame. Uh, and that is going on right now. That discussion is the dominant discussion on the right of the cause of the crisis. And it is not really, it's ridiculous, of course, but it's not uh, openly countered uh, by a exposing the racism involved in that and by exposing the, and by an angry, what ought to be an angry movement about, you know, you had uh, broker firms with multi-million dollar personal incentives from the CEOs to huckster fraudulent loans on people who wanted to buy their first home. And they got them into loans they knew they couldn't afford with trick uh, clauses and escalating rates and back-end uh, deals. And, uh, and the, uh, most of these loans were fraudulent on their face, and then they were marketed upstream to banks that could make, had, where executives had multi-million dollar incentives to chop them up and, uh, and uh, market them to investors, and they never looked at the loan. They relied on rating agencies, and the rating agencies never looked at the loans. And so you had an entire uh, Ponzi scheme built on systematic uh, fraud at the, at, in which you are going to remove, the great, as you said, the greatest amount of wealth from uh, the African-American community and from poor people, or not even poor people, from working people who were about to, who were trying to buy their first home that we have ever seen. It, it, is, a, it is a social catastrophe. And there are people that would be really angry about it, and instead we have this right-wing version of the crisis and not much of a discussion on our side. Good afternoon. My name is Charles. My name is Charles Yancey, member of the Boston City Council, and I'm here um, with a very, very brief task. That is to tell Barbara Lee how much we love her <laughs> and, the work, <clears throat> and the work that she's been doing for us in Washington and indeed around the world. Um, I was very pleased to see that before um, our relationship with uh, Cuba began to normalize a bit. Uh, Barbara Lee was taking the lead on that issue, as so many others. But, 
But I'm reminded that uh, Barbara Lee used to work for a young man by the name of Ron Dellums, who was also loved by us here in Boston. And now uh, Ron is mayor of uh, Oakland, California, with a dealing with a different set of issues. So I wanted uh, particularly uh, Representative uh, Barbara Lee to comment on the urban agenda, but I also uh, was reminded when Lee Ferris was uh, asking her question that in the early 80s, uh, my first piece of legislation was the South African divestment legislation, uh, which uh, inspired other cities to do the same in terms of fighting against the apartheid uh, regime in South Africa. I'm supposed to be at a rally right now concerning Darfur. That's why I can't stay. But I did want uh, the panelists, particularly uh, Representative Lee, to comment on the urban agenda as briefly as possible and what our relationship should be uh, concerning the apparent uh, genocide, the real genocide taking place in Darfur, but not only in Darfur. Uh, we also have to be concerned about what's happening in the Middle East and in Gaza and Palestine and elsewhere. So um, in this Obama era, if I can call it that, uh, what um, role do you think we should take, not only as part of a federal government, a national government, but also those of us who are still struggling at the local level, uh, such as uh, Ron Dellums uh, and myself. What do you think our stance should be on some of these issues? Thank thanks, you very much. Thanks, Good to see you. Thank you for your support, friendship, and your kind words. And you certainly have been a leader from, in the vineyard. You've been plowing in the vineyards for many, many years. And thanks for coming. I uh, want to yeah, give, give uh, Yancey a round of applause. You're cutting edge, you're progressive, uh, someone who's been uh, out there uh, on all of these agendas. The urban agenda, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased that the president understands this urban agenda and is, um, has established an office uh, to focus on the urban agenda. And I, we got a glimpse of this during the economic recovery package in terms of how the resources, again, with the Congressional Black Caucus working with the White House, how we have to target resources to those communities hardest hit by this recession, but also to those communities uh, which have been neglected forever, and that's urban communities. And so much of what uh, is taking place now is an urban agenda, but it hasn't been formulated yet as an urban agenda, but I think you will uh, see a rollout of, of that agenda. But I think up until now, when you look at each and every uh, bill and uh, the economic recovery package, when you look at the budget, that's an urban agenda budget. Uh, and so the president, I think, is doing a fine job in putting that back on the table and has invested the resources to establish an office with the head of an office to, to shape this. Uh, Darfur, uh, I'm, and I have to commend your, your Massachusetts uh, delegation, Congressman McGovern. He's been arrested now several times. I've been arrested. Uh, tell, is he going to be at the rally? Give him my regards. Uh, you know, uh, and I always wear my uh, Save Darfur not on our watch uh, band because that's exactly what we're saying, not on our watch. Yet it is genocide is occurring as we sit here today. I visited the camps three times. Uh, I've seen this take place, and it's been unbelievable that after even years ago we declared genocide as being as taking place in Darfur, and when a declaration of genocide is made, your government should enact policies to implement the declaration of genocide, which the Bush administration did not do. 
I've passed legislation with, with Congressman McGovern's support and the delegation's support here in Massachusetts uh, to allow for divestment of, of uh, pension funds. And I'm very proud to say that uh, California has divested, uh, University of California has divested. I think Harvard was one of the first universities, if I remember correctly, to divest. Uh, and what my legislation did, and Bush signed it into law and then issued one of those signing statements because he really didn't want to do that, would uh, allow states to move forward universities in their divestment campaigns without, being, without court challenges and also uh, not allow any federal contract to be negotiated with these multinational, multinational corporations that are doing business in Darfur. So we have to beef up the divestment push as we did and you did with South Africa. We have to uh, provide for the humanitarian concerns and I'm delighted that Bashir has been called before, that has been indicted to go before the International Criminal Court. He is a criminal and he is responsible for the murders and deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. But right now the humanitarian concerns are paramount. You know, we've got to make sure that we have the resources and somehow get the humanitarian workers back in to Darfur because it's, it's a mess now after the indictment uh, and after Bashir kicked out the humanitarian workers. The president, uh, to his credit, has um, appointed a special envoy and Congressman Payne and myself and McGovern and others push for a special envoy for Darfur. We want to make sure he has a team, it's just not him, but he has a team of people to get this under control and so that we can, you know, uh, move forward. critical mass on the outside, and that's what we have to do uh, with you. Um, well, first, to be fair to the president, uh, I, I guess I, what I would describe is he's done a good job of picking the low-hanging fruit on progressive taxation. So he, this is a president who uh, ran as a candidate who said he would raise taxes on the top 1%. American candidates do not run and say they're going to raise taxes. So. While it was a small group, it was amazing that he did it. Uh, second, on the estate tax, uh, he had a, uh, he's had a pitch battle on his hands not to make it lower, but to keep it from get, I mean, not to make it higher, but to keep it from getting lower uh, with, again, Republicans combining with the, a few conservative Democrats to try to force uh, reduction from the rates that it is now, and he's managed to win that. Uh, but it was a purely defensive battle. He's also tried to get uh, to eliminate the hedge fund dodge that allows billionaire hedge fund operators to pay a lower tax rate than their secretaries. I don't know that I can't. I don't know where that is now. I don't know whether we passed it or yet or not. Um, so at least he's put out some progressive markers. Um, but you know the uh, taxes are are the uh, uh, you know you don't. What is the, you don't sell the, the grease when you cook the steak, you sell, you sell the steak, or whatever that <laughs> metaphor is. I'm sure I blew that one. Uh, but uh, uh, first you ought to sell the steak. We ought to talk, we're going to have this argument in two years. Do we keep the education budget where it is uh, and go to universal pre-K uh, pre for everyone and make college affordable? Do we sustain a new energy investments that are creating uh, new industries and new jobs and, and dealing with the catastrophic climate change uh, uh, and effects that we face and getting us off our addiction to oil? 
are we going to make sustain the infrastructure investments we need to build a 21st century infrastructure? To do that, we're going to have to pay for them. And uh, in a time of gilded age inequality, uh, progressive tax reform makes all the sense in the world. And there are a lot of taxes that are very popular. Uh, you know, for a small transactions tax on uh, stock speculation, which the British have, uh, the Europeans have, uh, would raise $100 billion or so a year. Uh, no one would notice it except the hedge fund operators are the guys that are betting constantly, and we want to lower the amount of betting that goes on daily and speculation that goes on daily in the stock market. So there's a whole range of taxes that ought to get done. Uh, the group you're, you're a member of is doing really terrific work on that and uh, needs to be complemented. But I think uh, the way that we're going to have, hopefully have this argument is in defending the investments we need uh, and not allowing them to cut them back again, we're going to have to find ways to pay for them, and then we ought to have progressive taxation. All right. This gentleman here had his hand up for a moment, and then we'll go. Uh, okay, I'll try to order. Oh, okay. Hi, my name is Ahmad Rivera. I'm with the Initiative in Diversity and Civic Leadership, and my question is particularly about your thoughts on Obama's first 100 days, and what I thought was interesting is that race, as with Obama's first 100 days, was sorely not mentioned explicitly. And we are actually moving towards this assumption of racism, particularly structural racism, being not only a legacy, but moving past that. In some ways, past gender, past class, Obama is going to solve it and allow us to make bridges past troubled waters for such a long time. And just to name some things that I am seeing statistically that are kind of problematic, foreclosure crisis, which this, the one element that was progressive Obama's plan did not pass uh, our Congress. Uh, the rest of it wasn't even necessarily addressing those who are already in foreclosures, which is leading to the greatest loss of wealth in modern history for people of color. We have stagnant wages that have been happening since 2001 for people of color, particularly women of color, and we haven't seen a progressive agenda around women, particularly women of color, who are the central to the economy or building economies for communities of color and marginalized communities, none of which has been on the agenda uh, for this Obama administration. And even to push, I'm even, uh, and while uh, uh, Representative Lee, there are some great some things, especially with the Neighborhood Stabilization Act, so I want to applaud the pushing of actually making that particularly progressive with looking at place as a way to engage marginalized communities. But that has been one of the few bills that have left the Congress that has even included specific language around historically marginalized populations, race, or gender. So I just want to know, are we in a post-racial society according to this particular panel, or are we looking to have a strong critique about where we're going to go as far as progressive movement is? Thank you. Well, I think that um, first President Obama's election uh, demonstrated that on issues of race, we've made a quantum leap. We're at a different place, and we can't forget, however, that racism is alive and well in America. That is uh, why um, I personally believe the decision not to participate in the Durban Conference on Racism and Racial Discrimination was not a correct decision. <laughs> and I said that uh, because race has to be a factor in everything that we do. Because if it's not, you're just sweeping and wiping the issue of race under the rug again. Structural racism, institutional racism also is alive and well, and we have to deal with that in our policies. And 
that's the role of the Congressional Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, and Asian Pacific American Caucus. We, can, we have to be the voices of conscience, and we have to keep race as a factor in everything that we do. And so you will see in our legislative agenda that this will be part of the debate. And we do not intend to allow uh, the election of the president to deter us on issues of historical discrimination and racism. And the president gets it. He's the president, and he supports our efforts. And uh, many have said that, well, he hasn't talked about race, and he hasn't talked about how he's going to address the African-American and Latino or Asian Pacific and American communities. And the response from the White House was, look at what I'm doing. You know, you can look at the budget. You can look at how we're targeting the funding. You can look at X, Y, and Z. Whether you agree or disagree, I think the president, and we met, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus also met with the president. And, and I'm confident that he uh, understands and knows exactly what you just said and is supporting uh, efforts to address and deal with structural racism. I think you're going to need, though, and, and we have to recognize we're not in a post-racial era, and that would be foolhardy to, to believe that. But it's going to be important for all of you to make sure that the dialogue on race, and I think this is the perfect opportunity for communities to engage in uh, the dialogue that we have not wanted to engage in up until now, and that is have, a, have serious dialogues and community forums on uh, issues of race and racism. Uh, when you look at uh, the whole issue of disparity in sentencing as it relates to crack and powder cocaine, I mean, that's clearly an issue of structural racism, you know, when you look at those who are incarcerated under that policy. We met with Secretary, uh, the Attorney General Eric Holder. We, when we met with the President, we said, this has got to go. We have to repeal this. They agreed with us. But we have to build a political movement for some of these changes. And so I think that it's time for communities to get very serious about uh, talking about race and racism as we try to bring together a broader progressive coalition to really uh, turn the country around on all of these issues. One of the things that we have looked at, which we gave you a little preview of, is that it, it, if you look at the economic crisis or the housing crisis, the uh, issues of uh, the impact in terms of race and gender and marital status, the differences are stunning. One of the things that we are going to be doing is putting out a series of um, policy papers saying, you know, as you address the uh, problems in healthcare, as you address the problems in housing, and you know the uh, other key areas, if you don't also address the disparate uh, impact, you're not really solving the problem. You're just carrying the problem forward in a new way. So, um, no, we're not in a post-racial society. And understanding how, as we move the country forward to narrow the disparities, is the fundamental task I think that uh, this administration faces. I thought your comment was terrific, uh, and uh, the, the politics of it are very uh, difficult for the president. Uh, so uh, in an economic collapse like this one, uh, this is a time when the argument that says universal programs, uh, health care, you know, uh, minimum wage, put people to work, universal programs uh, are popular, are needed. Uh, are compelling, and they make him the leader of the nation, which, of course, uh, he 
is and, and must be. Um, and it then gets, it gets harder for him, I think, because he is an African-American, to make the argument that says the reality you pointed out, that universal programs have a disparate effect if we have entrenched and structural uh, racist differences in the, that are built into the society. Um, I think he did a good job, in fact, it, with the recovery plan, uh, in part because of the work that Barbara and others did, uh, of creating programs that tried to address that and of emphasizing pieces of the program, uh, like the, the, the remarkable investment in the poverty agenda, that have a disproportionate effect that aid uh, minority communities, uh, poor minority communities, um, and women. But uh, I think the the rhetorical or the public discussion of it is going to be a very difficult thing. He's going to be very loath to do that. Uh, and so it's going to have to take place, again, from the outside, uh, and the discussion has to be uh, driven that way. And the housing thing that you pointed to is exactly the place, it seems to me, where we're having that discussion without having it. So the, the right-wing description of the housing crisis is that the powerful poverty lobby under the Bush years uh, got uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to force banks to make loans to people, those people, who weren't deserving of those loans. And they brought us down. So the right-wing right description of what happened is liberals in government, Barney Frank, Bill Clinton, uh, the, the Nancy Pelosi Congress, driven by black people, the poverty lobby, uh, forced the banks to make loans to people who didn't deserve them, and they destroyed the banking system, and now we're all paying the price. And, and you, black people, are to blame. Uh, and that is going on right now. That discussion is the dominant discussion on the right of the cause of the crisis, and it is not really, it's ridiculous, of course, but it's not uh, openly countered uh, by, A, exposing the racism involved in that and by exposing the, and by an angry what ought to be an angry movement about, you know, you had uh, broker firms with multi-million dollar personal incentives from the CEOs to huckster fraudulent loans on people who wanted to buy their first home. And they got them into loans they knew they couldn't afford with trick uh, clauses and escalating rates and back-end uh, deals and uh, and the, uh, most of these loans were fraudulent on their face, and then they were marketed upstream to banks that could make, had, where executives had multi-million dollar incentives to chop them up and, uh, and uh, market them to investors, and they never looked at the loan. They relied on rating agencies, and the rating agencies never looked at the loans. And so you had an entire uh, Ponzi scheme built on systematic uh, fraud at the, at, in which you are going to remove the great, as you said, the greatest amount of wealth from uh, the African American community and from poor people, or not even poor people, from working people who are about to, who are trying to buy their first home that we have ever seen. It, it, is, a, it is a social catastrophe. And there are people that would be really angry about it, and instead we have this right wing version of the crisis and not much of a discussion on our side. Good afternoon. My name is Charles Yancey, member of the Boston City Council, and I'm here um, with a very, very brief task. That is to tell Barbara Lee how much we love her. 
and the work <clears throat> and the work that she's been doing for us in Washington, indeed around the world. Um, I was very pleased to see that before um, our relationship with uh, Cuba began to normalize a bit, uh, Bob Lee was taking the lead on that issue, as so many others. But, but I'm reminded that uh, Bob Lee used to work for a young man by the name of Ron Delums, who was also loved by us here in Boston. And now uh, Ron is mayor of uh, Oakland, California, with a di dealing with a different set of issues. So I wanted uh, particularly uh, Representative uh, Barbara Lee to comment on the urban agenda, but I also uh, was reminded when Lee Ferris was uh, asking her question that in the early 80s, uh, my first piece of legislation was the South African divestment legislation, uh, which uh, inspired other cities to do the same in terms of fighting against the apartheid uh, regime in South Africa. I'm supposed to be at a rally right now concerning Darfur. That's why I can't stay. But I did want uh, the panelists, particularly uh, Representative Lee, to comment on the urban agenda as briefly as possible and what our relationship should be uh, concerning the apparent uh, genocide, the real genocide taking place in Darfur, but not only in Darfur. Uh, we also have to be concerned about what's happening in the Middle East and in Gaza and Palestine and elsewhere. So um, in this Obama era, if I can call it that, uh, what um, role do you think we should take, not only as part of a federal government, a national government, but also those of us who are still struggling at the local level, uh, such as uh, Ron Dellums uh, and myself. What do you think our stance should be on some of these issues? Thank <laughs> thanks, you very much. Thanks, Good to see you. Thank you for your support, friendship, and your kind words. And you certainly have been a leader for, uh, in the vineyard. You've been plowing in the vineyards for many, many years. And thanks for coming. I uh, want to yeah, give, give uh, Yancey a round of applause. You're cutting edge, you're progressive, uh, someone who's been uh, out there uh, on all of these agendas. The urban agenda, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased that the president understands this urban agenda and is, um, has established an office uh, to focus on the urban agenda. And I, we got a glimpse of this during the economic recovery package in terms of how the resources, again, with the Congressional Black Caucus working with the White House, how we have to target resources to those communities hardest hit by this recession, but also to those communities uh, which have been neglected forever, and that's urban communities. And so much of what uh, is taking place now is an urban agenda, but it hasn't been formulated yet as an urban agenda, but I think you will uh, see a rollout of, of that agenda. But I think up until now, when you look at each and every uh, bill and uh, the economic recovery package, when you look at the budget, that's an urban agenda budget. Uh, and so the president, I think, is doing a fine job in putting that back on the table and has invested the resources to establish an office with the head of an office to, to shape this. Uh, Darfur, uh, I'm, and I have to commend your, your Massachusetts uh, delegation, Congressman McGovern. He's been arrested now several times. I've been arrested. Uh, tell, is he going to be at the rally? Give him my regards. Uh, you know, uh, and I always wear my uh, Save Darfur Not on Our Watch uh, band because that's exactly what we're saying, not on our watch. Yet it is 
genocide is occurring as we sit here today. I visited the camps three times. Uh, I've seen this take place. And it's been unbelievable that after even years ago, we declared genocide as being as taking place in Darfur. And when a declaration of genocide is made, your government should enact policies to implement the declaration of genocide, which the Bush administration did not do. I passed legislation with, with Congressman McGovern's support and the delegation support here in Massachusetts uh, to allow for divestment of, of uh, pension funds. And I'm very proud to say that uh, California has divested. Uh, University of California has divested. I think Harvard was one of the first universities, if I remember correctly, to divest. Uh, and what my legislation did, and Bush signed it into law and then issued one of those signing statements, because he really didn't want to do that, would uh, allow states to move forward, universities, in their divestment campaigns without, being, without core challenges, and also uh, not allow any federal contract to be negotiated with these multinational, multinational corporations that are doing business in Darfur. So we have to beef up the divestment push as we did and you did with South Africa. We have to uh, provide for the humanitarian concerns, and I'm delighted that Bashir has been called before, that has been indicted to go before the International Criminal Court. He is a criminal, and he is responsible for the murders and deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. But right now, the humanitarian concerns are paramount. You know, we've got to make sure that we have the resources and somehow get the humanitarian workers back in to Darfur because it's, it's a mess now after the indictment uh, and after Bashir kicked out the humanitarian workers. The president, uh, to his credit, has um, appointed a special envoy and Congressman Payne and myself and McGovern and others push for a special envoy for Darfur. We want to make sure he has a team, it's just not him, but he has a team of people to get this under control and so that we can, you know, uh, move forward.